coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. There are still many that say there are tons of vaccine in freezers while every province experiences a shortage. Have we lost our ability to put risk in perspective when it comes to AstraZeneca? And the conservatives have a climate change plan. It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Chris Thompson, Scott's son. Trying to find a COVID-19 vaccine shot in Canada is like searching for a needle in a haystack. Except there is no haystack. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! It is 12.09. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping the, uh, what day is it? Thursday edition of the Scott Thompson Home Show Between the Pipes, week number 56. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com. Not really. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that. Uh, send us a note via the website, scottthompson at 900chml.com. Phone lines are always open. So uh, another busy show. Uh, we're going to play you a clip right now. And uh, this sort of uh, sums up where we are and uh, the delays. The Ontario Solicitor General, uh, again, commenting that uh, the delays that we're seeing uh, are due to the Moderna shipment, uh, which was supposed to come in last week, did not come in last week. Uh, understand that it is now arriving, but the result was lots of cancellations in appointments across, uh, across uh, especially the GTHA. And, uh, you know, many are saying, well, you know, there's a million in the freezer. Well, those are for other appointments. So if you, you know, rob Peter to pay Paul and keep those appointments open, you've left somebody else who is vulnerable. Here's what uh, Global's Rick Zamperin has to say. Sylvia Jones says a 10-day delay in receiving the latest doses of the COVID-19 vaccine has had a cascade effect on public health units running clinics. Premier Doug Ford says it has forced the shutdown of two immunization clinics in Toronto. Cancellations had federal conservative leader Aaron O'Toole criticizing the Trudeau government in the House of Commons for failing to deliver enough vaccines more quickly. The severe third wave Canadians are experiencing right now is the direct result of the months it has taken for Canada to secure vaccines. Is the Prime Minister satisfied that his vaccine rollout has now become an international embarrassment. Ford says the province can't plan properly if it doesn't know when vaccines are coming through the production lines. Rick Samprin, Global News. All right, there you have it. Uh, um, And that continues right the way across the country. What we're experiencing in here in Ontario is uh, as far as uh, delays in vaccination and shortages is what the provinces are dealing with uh, right the way across the country. So uh, it's just something we have to manage until we can get enough uh, vaccines into the country to uh, to effectively get uh, herd immunity. All right, let's get an update on all of this. Bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, professor emeritus with the School of uh, Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, indeed, Scott. Uh, thank you very much. So uh, we are where we are right now. Uh, Ontario, obviously, uh, in a situation where we've got 4,736 new cases, is more needed as far as lockdown. Do we need to just shut it all down at this time, Timothy? Well, you know, if we ask that question, uh, as we were asking, and you were asking the question yourself back uh, some months ago, if we'd done the job properly, 
and uh, done it uh, fast and hard and enforced and done it properly, we would have seen uh, a, a much, much less in the way of figures. I mean, all well, the evidence is in front of us. When Melbourne did this after their catastrophic second wave, they really clamped down hard. They had uh, curfews and everything else, uh, high penalties and enforced uh, quarantine and so on. They brought it down to essentially zero. I mean, there's people then that, uh, following that. They were going to the beach. They were having parties. Uh, you know, it was essentially gone. And that's what we could have done. But this half measure, Scott, is just not really, it just prolongs the agony. You know, it's just like tearing off a, a bandage a little one millimeter at a time for, for a week. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Um, uh, we're certainly hearing that the concern right now, especially with this third wave, is the variants, the variants that have come in from uh, outside the country and in, in, from certain areas. Uh, the Globe and Mail reporting that uh, Ottawa uh, has dropped the uh, specific COVID-19 uh, screening for travelers from Brazil. Uh, this as variants spread through British Columbia. Is it a wise idea? Do we need to be doing more, not less, in regard to traveling, considering this, you know, the third way really is all about the variants? You're right. The third wave is almost like a pandemic within the pandemic, and it's taken over. It's, it took over in Britain. It was up to about 89% of the isolations with the new variants. In Canada, it's, a, it's more than 50% if you take across the country average. Uh, yeah, it's been driven by that. And the, the last look I had at the actual figures as of last night, uh, our third wave figures are shooting skyway just like a rocket, and uh, we're virtually at the same position we were at for the second wave in terms of the heights, and so showing no signs of, of flattening off. So we, we, my prediction is that we will have a, a third wave that actually exceeds the second wave in terms of numbers. and people. It'll be a slightly different sector in the population, uh, but it's, in, fact, uh, in fact, that's what I was also shocked at, was that the, the uh, age group with the largest number of isolations right now is in the age group 20 to 39, if you can remember back a year ago, it was the yeah. 60 and plus people. It was the old, nasty, old, crusty people like me. But now it's the younger people now. So are more travel restrictions needed? Should we still be uh, screening for these uh, variants? Right. Uh, why would we not be? Other than the, other than the, uh, the uh, enforced quarantine that was brought in fairly recently for people coming back to Canada, other than that, Canada has a, had a, 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 a travel uh, a protocol, if you like, that's more resembling a colander. I mean, there were people back in the beginning of the second wave where the only screening at the airport was somebody would ask somebody, uh, do you have any of these symptoms? No? Okay, off you go there. Now, wh where's the screening integrity in that? And the countries that have brought in screening have uh, had this thing under control much to a much greater degree. Uh, and we know one of the things, one of the many things we learned about this particular uh, uh, disease is that it's not everybody spreading it to exactly 2.5 people and so on and so on to the society. No, it's very few people who's managed to spread it to very large numbers. So most people won't spread it around, but the odd people who do can give it to uh, 25 or 35, even 104 people. It's, that's where it goes. So it just needs one person coming in from another country like Brazil, and next thing you know, you've got it spreading around. So we do need a much better uh, monitoring at the airports, and that's where rapid testing come in. We've spoken about this before last week, I think. You know, we have these 
30 to 37 to 40 million tests sitting somewhere, and nobody's really doing much about them. These could be, now they're not 100%, nothing is 100%, whether it's vaccines or treatments or screening or monitoring, it's all less than 100%, but when you begin to layer it up, you know, you begin to get a much better screening. So you can begin to say, let's have people arriving at the airport, at the very least, they, they have a rapid test, and we follow up on that. We find out where they're going, and we follow up. So at least we're going to get a good proportion of these. Uh, is what we're seeing now, Doctor, fallout from the holidays? Some of it may be. It's, uh, once, once it begins to move around, you begin to look back about one to two weeks, and you begin to think it, it's possible it could be. I think we saw a big spike after certain events like Thanksgiving, especially in the States. We saw it after Mardi Gras in the States as well. We saw it after Christmas and New Year's, a bit of a, a peak there as well. That came right in the beginning. Top, we peaked the second wave on that one. But uh, now we're seeing a sort of a, a, a general rise where it's coming from all areas now. It's, there's no one particular sector. One area that's really worrying is uh, sort of social areas, uh, uh, regions of uh, large conurbations where people don't have the choice of going to a party or not. It's the fact that they're at their job, their workplace. If you can remember when when the government said, you know, come back from the wherever you are and uh, come back to Canada, now's the time to come back. And this is about May or June last year, and they didn't to worry about the taxi drivers and the limousine drivers all began to die off at a, at a at a high rate because they were exposed to 20 or 30 families coming back every day. And so we don't have to think about the workers. And in this case, we've got workers packing food, packing uh, your boxes that get delivered by Amazon and so on. And these are the people who are exposed. Uh, cheek by jowl with each other for extended whole you know eight hour work shift that's where the transmission is taking place in in great many of our cities uh we saw uh, a number of vaccine clinics have to shut down across the province especially in the hot spot areas uh due to lack of supply uh the the moderna dose that was supposed to come in last week did not i understand it's arriving now uh, but th- these were for appointments that were scheduled uh, this week, obviously, that, that had to be count- canceled. How confident are you about uh, vaccine coming in? We keep hearing, you know, and in April, end of April, end of May, end of June, it's, it's all going to be uh, rosy. How, how confident, yet we're still seeing, uh, obviously, supply shortages that are causing uh, these clinics to be closed, despite people, you know, there's a great freezer conspiracy here in Ontario that someone's sitting on a whole pile of them somewhere, uh, which, you know, I mean, we've talked to so many experts that just said it's, you know, it's all about supply chain management. How concerned are you about supplies coming in? I'm very concerned. I know we, they'll, they'll all arrive at some point. But when they arrive, and that's the crucial issue at the moment, we're sitting right now at about 54 or 55th rank in the world in terms of uh, per, per million of the population, how many have been vaccinated at least once. 50, 45th rank in the world. Can you imagine that? We should be in the top yeah. 10. Now, that's rain mainly because of decisions made by previous governments and so on to not uh, allow a vaccine to be produced, in, not allow, not, to not support the large-scale vaccine production in Canada. We've had a small amount of vaccine produced for things like Ebola in the past, and we do pretty well on that, but not the large scale. But that's another issue for another day. But certainly it is arriving, but it's, we're subject to other people's policies and protocols in other countries that produce this stuff. 
And of course, then we've got the AstraZeneca uh, stuff, uh, which is causing some hesitation by itself. The vaccine is probably one of the best vaccines. It's a remarkable vaccine. But because of all the the, uh, raised eyebrows of suspicion and because of the poor administration and the the information getting out, people begin to hesitate. And I can understand that. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. Is there a risk here? No matter how big or small it is, is there a risk and should I avoid it? Well, my advice is not to avoid it. There's a far greater risk by orders of magnitude by sitting around being unvaccinated in the present situation in in our large cities than there is by the minuscule risk uh, of, of, of any untoward effects as a result. You, you, there, it's vanishingly small, but it is a risk there, and people are asking the question. But sure, it's a, it's a large, complicated process. I, well, that is our one way out of this hole, is, is, is herd immunity. And the only way we're going to get that, uh, at least I hope the only way we're going to get it, is through vaccination. The other way is to forget vaccination and just allow everybody to get the illness. And that, of course, is, is lunacy. It's madness. So vaccine is our way out, and we've got to get them in. We've got to catch up with the rest of the world, and it looks like we're going to be delayed for that to some degree. Uh, There was an interesting article in the Globe and Mail today. We have lost our ability to put risk in perspective when it comes to AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Have we got lost in the sauce here? Well, you know, on the one hand, uh, what what the media is doing is the right thing. It's asking questions. Should somebody raise a, a doubt in another country about a certain vaccine? We we don't want to cover it up. Nobody wants to be seen to covering anything up. So be transparent. Yes, good. But once you're transparent, then people say, oh, I learned that there was something wrong with this thing. And then the, the, the gossip starts to move around. The next thing you know, it's, it's a major issue. In fact, it's not a major issue at all. It's an extremely small problem. But it is, and I was reading yesterday, the first three papers have arrived, Scott, uh, New England Journal of Medicine. I was going through these in some detail. This particular entity has now a name. It's called VITT. It's a vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Hmm. Uh, forget all that sort of fancy stuff. It's, it, 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 is a, it is a well-known uh, uh, pro event, uh, but seen for in other contexts. But it's really, hand, it's really affecting a handful of people after you know, uh, uh, tens of millions of people have been vaccinated with this thing with not a single site, in, no, single evidence in sight. Uh, but there are very few. Yes, there are a few, and they are countable, and, and uh, medical researchers now know what's, what, what it all means. But it, there's no real reason to, uh, to hesitate for this. Uh, we need to get the vaccines into people. And this particular, I have no, no trouble at all. In fact, I have recommended to people in our family that they should take the vaccine, even if, if it's uh, uh, Johnson Johnson or AstraZeneca, get it and get it as soon as possible. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist, professor emeritus with the School of Population and Public Health at Ryerson University. Doctor, thank you for the time as always. Much appreciated. Be well. I'm Scott. Keep asking those questions. I'm going to try. Thank you so much for the answers. Uh, Let's bring in Dr. Omar Khan, professor of bioengineering with the University of Toronto and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Your thoughts on where we were, uh, where we are with Ontario up over 4,700 uh, new cases uh, in the province? Are, are more lockdowns needed in your view? Well, let's look at the tools we have available to us. We have vaccines, and then we have physical measures like masks and distancing. And when we are low on one, we have to rely on another. So 
in this unfortunate situation, until we can get more supply, we're going to have to rely on our physical measures. Now, I think another important point to make is that even if someone was able to get vaccinated, they're still going to be relying on physical measures because your immune system needs time to convert the vaccine into protective immunity. So in any case, we're stuck with physical measures for the time being. Obviously, variants continuing to be a a massive concern. British Columbia, very, very uh, in a critical situation as well and very concerned about the variants uh, coming in. Uh, and, and obviously that's uh, highly responsible for our, our third wave and where we find ourselves. Uh, the Globe and Mail says Ottawa dropping specific COVID-19 screening for uh, travelers from Brazil uh, as the variant spreads through British Columbia. In regard to air travel, which is you know pretty much how we got, ended up where we are with these variants, should we be concentrating more on, on, on the screening as opposed to removing it? Well, I think it's always good to know where things are coming, but the challenge is once it's here, it spreads so quickly. So is the shift, should that be more on containing and preventing more spread? And there are many elements to that. Is it air travel restrictions? Is it testing? No matter what, testing is probably a great idea for everybody in general because we need to, we really need to track this. And we also need to figure out if there is a new variant and if someone is continuing to be sick despite being vaccinated. So if their severity of disease gets much worse, we need to know if a new variant is somehow, you know, our vaccines are not effective against the new variant. And what are the new strategies we have to do? So these are all challenging things to juggle right now. Are we spending too much time uh, right now, doctor, on too much attention on the incoming and upcoming vaccine as opposed to the protocol, which we all know has worked through the first and second waves? I think the protocol is necessary, like you mentioned, because there is a limited supply. So these physical measures are really all we have. And they, they did work and they're not popular and no one likes them. The, the, the challenge is when we don't have vaccines, as individuals, what are the only other things we can do? It's the physical measures, it's the masks, and it's the distancing. And I know that's difficult to do, especially with summer coming, but we have to also remember that even if you're vaccinated, you'll still need that time to develop protective immunity. And there's ongoing clinical trials to try to determine if your vaccine, which is going to protect you against severe disease, if that also prevents you from spreading the virus because, you know, there's that window where things can still happen and there's not much clarity on that. It's coming. The trials are happening. The studies are being done, but we're in the middle of this and we're trying to act as quickly as possible. So that's the other element that's making this super difficult to deal with. So we still don't know if those who are vaccinated can still spread this, do we? So in other words, oh, I'm hanging out with people that have been vaccinated. That's fine. It, it isn't, is it? it? It all depends, right? If that person's immune system responded well and they developed protective immunity and they were exposed and their immune system completely sterilized the virus and they're fine, yeah, no problem. They're not spreading it. But what if you have a virus, a variant that's a bit different that can still spread while you're protected from severe disease, you might still be spreading. And there's always that window, right? Because 
this can this can happen. We, we need to track this down. The problem is with so many people infected, the chance of creating a new variant just goes up, right? Yeah. And then <laughs> keeping that in the mix too, if, if we are the ones now responsible, can you imagine being a Canada variant out there? That would be terrible. And we, <laughs> we just definitely don't want to be remembered for that. You know, you bring up a very valid point here, doctor, because Canada is so far behind in vaccination. And we all know uh, these variants don't aren't having as much impact on, say, as uh, the United States as they are here, simply because they're vaccinating at a much higher rate. The faster you vaccinated, the uh, vaccinating, the less time you have for for variants. But are we going to see a Canada or a Canadian variant because we're sitting where we are and, and we just we, we don't have vaccination, so these things are continuing to mutate. I think the responsibility we have as individuals is to use our only other tool, which is the physical measures, until we can get the supply up. We're kind of stuck in this together. And if we have to wear masks and distance longer while we wait, and it's such a bad situation to be in to need to wait for someone else to give us what we need. But, you know, it, it's in the future, I don't think we'll be in this situation again. We've learned. But until now, it's kind of on us to try to stop this. We talked about uh, what you can and can't do or, or alluded to it uh, with the first shot. Um, should we feel confident having one shot? Or is it really not until you get that second shot, where, as we've seen with the Center for Disease Control in, in the uh, United States, that's, that's when, you can, when you can open up, but, but not until you get the second shot. I think if we let's let's look at what the clinical trial data showed us. It showed us that for whatever vaccine you got, if you wait about a month after that dose, your first dose, you develop a pretty good level of protection against severe disease. Yeah. So your antibodies you keep getting optimized and refined by your body and after that month you you're in a good spot and that's normal. That's how your immune system works, whether you're infected and recovered or whether you get a vaccine. So we, we know that to be the case. So that's why that one month feels like a really important time. But the boost, I think, the second dose is important because this helps our immune system's memory. And, you know, that's going to be important to try to figure out the timing on that. We've had to extend it because of a supply issue. That's, that's an issue. We have to address that, and that's what it is. And But we can be bolstered. We, we can feel good that knowing that immunologically, the way the immune system works, the month should help you at the very least. Your thoughts on hesitancy, especially around AstraZeneca and now uh, the Johnson & Johnson. Uh, have Canadians lost our ability to put risk in perspective when it comes to these vaccines? I think the it's it's challenging because the, there's a risk with any kind of licensed medical drug from cancer treatment drugs to birth control. They'll all increase your risk of blood clots and uh, higher than what we've seen with these vaccines so far. Right. And so I think that that's part of it. The people are new to this risk for the first time. And it again, perception is different, but these risks they're everywhere, and there are high-risk things out there. Now, the other thing that we should really point out is that we had that first case of blood clotting in Quebec, but 
with medical officials aware that this is a challenge, they're watching out for it. So this new training that's come into effect where people are surveilling for this, this is probably a good thing. And this, at the very least, should give people a bit more confidence because we know what to look for and we're going to watch. And I think that should help temper things. So that's what I'm hopeful for. But in the end, our the only enemy we have is viral replication, and that happens because of infection rates. If people are infected, the chance of variants, they go up, right? So what are our only tools? Vaccines and physical measures. So we that's the risk balance. And I think for me, and when I line up to get when it's my turn eventually, I hope, <laughs> I, I'll take that risk. Uh, me too. Um, uh, we're, I think it helps because there's, you know, a, a lot of people are asking for transparency. A lot of people mm-hmm. are asking for more and more information. And yet when boom, it all lands in front of us, it can be pretty intimidating and, and daunting at times. Uh, you know, I, I guess there's never such thing as too much information, but when it's not clarified, it can become a problem. Uh, you bring up a, a, a couple of valid points. And I think the comparison issue works. And, and I saw a piece the other day where they were talking about birth control pills and other, you know, I think it was blood pressure medication and such, which all have or seem to have a higher risk uh, in regard to clotting or other various conditions than what the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine does. So these sorts of comparison help uh, help translate this information to the common person, no? Uh, I agree. I think if you're aware of how much risk you take every day and then look at what happens with COVID, again, COVID it can make you very sick and it can lead you to, to death, right? And, and that's, that's what we're getting, we're fighting against here. And, so, and it's not just you, right? You can spread it to someone else and you can cause them to get really sick and maybe something worse. So that's what we're trying to figure out. And, and in terms of the data, how it comes out, you know, transparency is great. And I think there's this appreciation of, you know, what it means because it, I think the premier alluded to this. He said, I don't want to ramp up only to just ramp down again. I think that was alluding to challenges with the supply chain, right? And we're seeing that now with these cancellations of appointments and this buffer that's happening because what, what do you do? Do you do stop and go? Like you get, a, yeah. you get a shipment in and you go stop and then you just, once they're all done, no one's getting vaccinated. Or do you do a, a trickle, right? Where you, where you reduce the number of people getting it at any time, but, have it consistently go for a longer period of time. Like stop and go traffic, you stop and go, you'll eventually get there. You drive slowly, you'll eventually get there. But you both get there. But what's the best way? There's no right answer. But, you know, there are other factors too. How would people feel if the clinic shuts down? You know, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, what about, do you want to address the conspiracy theory that there are millions of vaccines sitting in freezers that are on our, that are unaccountable for, and that those should be used if these vaccinations are, uh, are being canceled? Like, are we not just robbing Peter to pay Paul here? Uh, and, and it seems that that, that sort of information is only creating more confusion. Let's look at where these vaccines are. Are they in some one freezer in one place or have they already been distributed and they are all over the province, right? And, and, and what do you do then? Like if, if that's the case, if it's spread out, you send a truck, it goes everywhere, starts collecting them all, where do you put them? Who gets them? These are all issues. And I think the, when they are distributed and people have signed up 
other folks to come in and get vaccinated. You know, they're trying to maintain as many appointments as they can to get those vaccines out. And there's the logistic challenge here is, again, do you just use everything up? You look at the local. Let's go back to the local. Just think about the local health unit. Are they going to use it all up and just say, hey, we got this much. First come, first serve. Let's do it. Let's try to do this by appointment and your appointment's not scheduled till later. So we're holding on to it. You know, these it's not an easy logistic challenge. Well, in the end, doctor, let's be honest. It's the difference between lining up in an orderly fashion and then just taking a whole pile of French fries and throwing them out into a parking lot and let the seagulls go nuts over them. That's one of the, yeah, and and you can imagine how we get accessibility issues, right? I know. I mean, it it amazes me, and again, it's disappointing that in a time when people are trying so hard to understand what is going on, that the politics comes into it, and, and, you know, we're we're starting conspiracy theories that there's piles of freezers filled with vaccines somewhere while we're canceling clinics, and it's, again, any... Uh, any chat with any business professor who can explain supply chain management will will clarify any of this. No, no one. It doesn't matter what political party you're with or what job you do or anything. No one wants people to die. Yeah. And everyone is just trying to make the best of a, a tough situation to ensure that people get vaccinated as quickly as they can. Cause it, and it's just, again, there's so many ways to do it. But just because something's being done one way, doesn't invalidate other ways, but you got to appreciate there's going to be a downside to anything unless we had unlimited supply. Uh, unless we have unlimited supply, exactly. Are you confident that that supply will continue? That we will continue to get? Uh, well, I guess we haven't really yet. But are you are you convinced that 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 you know? I don't know. It's the end of April, then end of May, end of June, whenever that we will have a constant supply. Or do you think we're going to be dealing with this all the way through the vaccination process, even when it comes time for everybody to get their second dose? I think we've seen. Uh, the, the government said that they're already looking towards 2022 and securing contracts to make sure that things are coming in. So it's good. People are looking ahead and trying to get this, you know, locked in. That's the first thing that I see that makes me feel optimistic. The second part is let, let's look at where vaccines are being manufactured. Uh, they're being manufactured, many of them, in the United States. And if they can all get vaccinated uh, by, by May, and that should hopefully open up a lot more shipments to the rest yeah. of the world. So these are things that you also have to consider. It's not just Canada. We have to look globally. What's happening with our neighbors? What's happening to the countries that are producing it? When they divert it to give to their populations, you know, when does that mean it comes to us? Let's just be realistic about this. So I think we're still looking towards the end of the year. I mean, this, this makes sense. This is how things are going. So really, our best uh, option here is as others finish up like the U.S., they'll send their extras up here. Well, they'll start fulfilling these contracts more timely without less issues. And, and they're pushing hard, too, because yeah. for Moderna, it was they, they don't want to release it until the quality assurance is done. That's good. That's good. Right. Because you want someone to sign up that says these are absolutely perfect. Yeah. I'm going to send them out. So if that's the reason for the delay. What would be worse if they sent out million, like hundreds of thousands of doses and then said, oops, right? yeah. or, you know, wait, give that that extra time because everyone's under pressure here, everyone. And no one wants to be the reason someone dies. So everybody in this supply chain. 
Dr. Omar Khan with us, Professor of Bioengineering with the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. In Canada, it seems there is even more in short supply beyond the chaotic search for adequate supplies of COVID-19 vaccine that actually arrive. We all remember the toilet paper hoarding and shortage of the first wave. Now we're seeing shortages of everything from sporting goods to lumber and all in between. But to add to the anxiety around our short supply of vaccine comes word campsites are now in such demand, those who initially reserved the sites are now selling them to others for up to five times the cost on social media platforms like Kijiji. In fact, the issue has gotten so big, many campers are demanding Parks Canada install software to prevent this type of campsite scalping. Parks Canada says it has security in place to prevent bots from booking, and this is simply campers reselling their sites. They are looking at ways to address this. This is sort of the third wave edition of the people who bulked up in the first wave on toilet paper and hand sanitizer, hoping to sell it online. This is all about making a profit from COVID-19. And it appears camping in the woods is no different. I'm Scott Thompson. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, You know, we've talked uh, at length uh, for the last uh, 56 weeks of how uh, the global pandemic has affected us and affected life. It's going to be interesting to see what it is like once this is all over and how we come out the other end, because obviously you can't go through something for this long and not have it affect you in some way. I was going to just like bark like a dog, but I thought that would be inappropriate. Uh, it's even affecting our summer. Uh, we know shortage of sporting goods, sporting supplies, all that sort of stuff. Uh, even building supplies, lumber, that sort of thing, uh, all in short supply. But how about campsites? Let's bring in Kevin Callan, author of The Happy Camper, and is with us now. Kevin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I hope, you, hope so, too. Uh, it's what We're only a week into stay-at-home. I'm, I'm going mentally ill. <laughs> so wh- tell us about The Happy Camper. What's this book about? Oh, I, I, I've been writing for years, but uh, I had a, a bestseller uh, a while back called The Happy Camper, and uh, everybody calls me The Happy Camper now. I, I, I guess I'm happy all the time. So, And you camp. There, there's the title. So how bad a situation is this? And, and right now, if you want to get a campground in Ontario, is it impossible? Right now it is. Um, hopefully maybe it might change, but it's absolutely insane out there right now. It really is. Last year it was double the reservations. Now it's uh, qu- quadruple. Um, the fully booked campsites and there's a lot more people going out there. This is an historic thing that's been happening. Like after world war two, after the depression, everybody went out into the woods to go camping because it was simple. It was cheap. And also, uh, it was to, to cure their, their, their minds, their anxiety. I mean, nature cures, right? So this is what's going on. So you did see a trend in this, like after the wars as well, whenever there's a crisis of this sort, you see uh, an acceleration in camping. Absolutely. In fact, you look at history during those times, there were so many people that they had to create more parks. That's incredible. Uh, okay, so uh, the demand is this both for uh, private and uh, provincially run campgrounds? Is this right across the country? It's right across the country for private campgrounds through uh, provincial parks, even federal parks, um, everything. There's just so many people going out in the, in the masses. So what is happening here? Tell us what the problem is. Well, the problem is that there was only a certain amount of places to go, right? So 
in, a, in the province of Ontario, you can actually book uh, in an Ontario park five months in advance. So that morning at seven in the, in the morning, you go to the reservation system, you try to get your favorite campsite at Kilbear or Algonquin, and you're not going to get it because it's already booked up or the, the, the system crashes because there's so many people trying to get the site. And then people get frustrated. Um, so the other thing that was going on is you can actually book a site for 23 days. That's legit. So what people are doing is they're doing that, but they're only using it for the long weekend that we want to go. Oh, and then, then they cancel out and then pay the cancellation fee. Last year during the pandemic, uh, well, the first year, um, they waived those cancellation fees, which made it worse, I guess. Uh, but now just people are just paying for that. And then you'll go to a campground and they'll say it's full, but it's not. There's, there's empty campsites because of that. Wow. Uh, so so is it possible, like, are people actually sort of subletting their campsites? Yes. So there's some legit ways to do that. You can go to a Facebook called Ontario Parks uh, Cancellation, and people will say, look, I can't go. Does anybody want my site? And there's no money exchanged, right? And there's even, I think, some companies that do this legit as well. But there are people that are saying, hey, I've got these sites. You, you can't have them unless you pay this much money. And people will. They'll pay five times the amount. It's like a scalping a, a ticket for the Stones concert, right? Yeah, I was just about to say, it's just like a concert ticket. So, yeah, and, uh, you know, this is why it can be done, too. Ontario Parks, uh, a few years ago, they made a rule to help people with, you know, you, you book your site, all of a sudden something happens in your life, you're sick or something happens and you can't make it. So you can give it to someone else and put their name on the permit. And that's legit. But what, what people are doing is they're doing that, but they're charging money, a lot of money for it. What is the average price of an average campground in Ontario? So yeah, it's a flat rate fee. So basically um, uh, around 30 bucks. Um, and then people are now charging like 150 bucks. So is this for public, both public and private? Because uh, I mean, I've got an email here from someone that says uh, they know siblings that have campgrounds and they've got uh, private campgrounds and there's more room. There's tons of room. Yeah, uh, private campgrounds are more, you know, they, they, they deal with it personally in their own site. It's not a, a, a provincial thing. But some people are doing, though, and they're even doing this on Ontario Parks. And I don't think anybody knows this, but they run their own B&Bs out of it. They, they get their trailer. They, they uh, book for 23 days, and then they rent their trailer out as a and b Like, that's just insane. Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's really smart. <laughs> <laughs> so do you think this is going to change the way parks do things? For example, what you just said. I mean, my goodness, uh, there's lots of people out there uh, that want to camp but perhaps don't have the facilities, uh, you know, don't want to rough it as far as pitching the tent. But, hey, if you've got the trailer up there and the campsite's already set up, I'll roll in. I mean, that is almost another cottage industry, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah, there's two ways to look at it, I guess. In one sense, I I believe in Ontario Parks. I know them uh, as friends. I know the past superintendents. Um, And I know they'll fix this issue because they're getting a lot of heat from this, right? So, um, But the other is, do they really have to? They're making the money. I mean, do they have to fix a system where they they get paid anyway? So that's the the problem. Will this drive up? So will this, do you think, drive up? the price of campgrounds because obviously you know uh, again you, you were talking about the average price are uh, they priced too low or if you price them higher the scalping prices just go higher yeah and i think that's a really good point because what's happening is that the demand is up and ontario parks runs at 80 to 90 percent uh, of their own money they don't get money from the government they, they, they left that part 
a few years back. So they have to have, they have to make a profit to keep going. So um, if there's more people, more demand, they'll, they'll put the weight, yeah, it's a business, right? So they'll put the money up. But that means if you're poor, you can't go camping. And that's what camping was all about when it first started. Yeah. You had no money. You had a big family. Where, what do you do? You go camping. You know, it amazes me, uh, Kevin, because uh, uh, I'm a cottager, <laughs> but camped all as, as as kids. We did the tent trailer, house trailer thing uh, for years as kids. But I, I pass a couple of trailer places on the way up, and man, I, you know, I'm thinking to myself, what are they going to do with all of these campers in the last couple of years? But man, these lots are literally empty now. I can't believe it. Yeah, you know, I, I would actually start um, becoming a tent a camper because the, the, the electric sites are the ones that everybody wants. Yeah. If you want a campsite th- this year, just bring a tent and don't bring your electricity, and you'll find a site. So it's those looking. It's those. It's glampers. Those looking for the extra comforts of home. Yeah, and that's what's happening with society. One says, "I'm not knocking it, but glamping is the big thing." Um, doing, you know. You think about what camping is, trying to sell it to someone that's never gone before. So we sleep on the wet ground, we get eaten by bugs. Why would we do that and pay 150 to $500 from a scalper to do that? <laughs> so is glamping a big thing? Like, what, Explain to everybody, first of all, what that is. Glamping is actually making yourself more comfortable in the, in the wilderness and, and also to take the phobias away. So you, you have all your luxuries. And I, I, I'm not knocking that whatsoever. I mean, as long as they're getting out. But, but out west, what's happening is that there's so many of them that there's no tent sites anymore. It's just RV sites. And right. a lot of purists are saying, well, that's not camping. So uh, getting back to the bush booking issue, uh, what about the, the – there's some that are claiming that uh, people are using bots to book these up and sucking them up. Like, again, it's a typical Ticketmaster issue. Uh, like you said, uh, buying a, uh, a hot concert ticket. Uh, is that going on, or are there security measures in place to prevent that from happening? Uh, Ontario Parks has said there is security uh, measures in place, but there's a lot of proof showing that that's not working. So, uh, I mean, I've gone to Kijiji and saw sites on for up to $500. So, obviously, it's not working. Um, but hopefully, they'll, they'll get it fixed. But you're going to have that happen all the time. Like, again, like a concert, someone's going to be unethical about it and, and win money through it, right? Does this happen in private parks as well? I, I, I think maybe indirectly it does. But I think a private park, because it's a separate identity, they can control that more. And um, we, we chatted a bit about this earlier. Obviously, uh, you're more involved with the Ontario or with provincial parks, and correct me if I'm wrong, but are private, uh, private campgrounds experiencing the same sort of problem? They are in some areas, but if you go north, maybe not. I mean, if you really want to go camping this year and get frustrated, go to northern Ontario, go to um, uh, um, Assemble de Champlain, go to Nays, go to... Uh, um, any p- parks in the north, and they won't have that much of an issue. What is happening up there, the parks aren't used as much, so they still have to make a profit. So they're, they're creating seasonal sites. So uh, uh, a person living up there, or whoever it is, can get their trailer and have their trailer at that campground for the whole entire season. So that blocks that campsite for you. So that might happen this year. But at the same time, they still need to make a profit because they're on their own as a business. How do you think, you know, we've often talked on this show how uh, businesses have, have pivoted, you know, the key words, nimble, all that stuff, um, and, and how businesses are going to change coming out the other end. How is this changing camping, the, the, the pandemic? How is this going to change camping moving forward? 
I think what's going to happen is in a couple of years when we all get settled down and the, the whole pandemic's over, there's going to be other people going back to their other activities, not camping, because they're just wanting to try it. And we're going to get probably 10% of them that will stay camping. And that's, again, that's historic. That's what's happened before as well. And as long as we actually educate and enforce um, the ones that are being unethical, because a lot of them just don't know, right? Then it, I think it will it'll be the, the better. Um, you know, I think it would be a positive thing. At least we're getting people back into nature because if we don't reconnect with nature, then when something goes wrong, we won't want to, want to protect it, right? Good point. Um, as much as there is a shortage of provincial campsites, there's a shortage of camping equipment. Are you finding that? That many oh, are trying yeah. to uh, find stuff that just doesn't exist. Oh, yeah, huge. Uh, trying to, trying to, uh, to buy a canoe, uh, Novacraft Canoe, I just talked to them the other day, and they're booked up until September. And they're, they're doing night shifts now making these things. So is there any sort of way, uh, what advice do you have for campers who are just starting out, want to do this for the first time? Uh, what do they need? Where, what should, where do they go? Obviously read the happy, uh, the happy camper. But, but, but if someone's never really done this before and they want to venture out, what advice would you give for them? I would say just don't uh, just don't watch a YouTube uh, full of adventure and think you can go off and do that yourself because then we're going to start looking for you and rescue you. Okay, <laughs> you need you need skill set before you're out there. I mean, like my my Scottish mother, she's like 86 years old. She's like three feet tall. And she's just didn't be stupid, you know. Yeah. So and um, you don't need fancy gear. I remember once where I got robbed and they stole every single piece of gear I had out of my vehicle. And then the next week, I was in the far north doing a trip on the old gear that I just baked, stilled, and borrowed from everybody. Yeah. So don't panic on that. Um, experience it. But also, uh, just make sure that you go into it slowly. Um, just don't jump into it. Because you're not going to like it if you jump into it. Like anything, camp, ski, golf within your ability, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I'm really worried about a lot of people going over their heads uh, this year and getting in danger. And then uh, they're going to say, well, we should have these people out in the wilderness. It's too dangerous. I don't want that to happen. So where do you think we should start? If someone's starting this, I mean, is it best to go to a relatively cushy campground before you make your way out into, like you said, the YouTube videos? Yeah, for sure. That's what I did as a kid. And I still do. I still go to campgrounds. But, uh, you know, I I went camping with my parents. Uh, They took us uh, to all the local uh, provincial parks. And then I went with my buddies in high school. We went to Killarney in an interior trip, and then we went to Algonquin. And now I spend my career going out at least 60 nights a year in, in the middle of nowhere. So so you're, you're, you're not a camper with a campsite. You just go out onto where, wherever you go, which is a, a completely different type of camping, isn't it? Yeah, I, I do go to the campgrounds, but I, I'm not knocking them because I still do that every year, um, especially because it's uh, familiar to me. But, yeah, I prefer not seeing anybody. So um, that's another thing that's going to happen now that's really interesting is that we have a thing in Ontario or all across Canada, every province has crown land. So 83% of the province is land that you can go anywhere, like up north in the bush, as long as it's crown land, you can camp anywhere you want for 21 days with no fee, right? So you don't have to pay. So Mm -hmm. a lot of us know about that, and I go and do that. But it's like a trout stream. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you where that is because it's, yeah. it's my own little spot that I found, right? But I don't know how many people are trying to find out about Crown Land right now because of this Ontario Parks issue. And what's that's going to happen is that then you're going to get people off in, in an area that's not maintained. Uh, it is full of, like, it's wilderness. 
And then there's going to be problems. They're going to leave garbage. They're going to get lost. They're, they're going to get in trouble. And that's what's going to happen this summer. When you go out, what do you camp with? What is What does Kevin take out? What does the campsite look like once you've set it up? Well, number one thing I bring is a sense of humor. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you know, you're saying that you don't want to see anybody when you're camping, so maybe that's why you're so happy. No one else is around. <laughs> it's true. Like, it really is. I mean, uh, you think about it, I'm, especially now, uh, we're so desperate to get out there. And why are we so desperate? I mean, now we're in the lockdown. It's because we're more free out there. You are who you are out there. And, and everybody, everybody knows that it, it reduces your anxiety beyond belief. And I don't try to go out there to survive. I go out there to, to thrive. In fact, actually, just a couple of weeks ago, that History Channel alone, they asked me to apply to be on their season nine. And I kind of laughed at them. I go, why would I do that? Why not? Because I want to be enjoying myself out there. Yeah. I don't want to start. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, again, getting back to that campsite, if I walked up to your campsite, Kevin, what would I see? Because I'm thinking as the happy camper, you got the latest gear, the latest whatever. Are you still in a tent? Are you driving a motorhome up to these places? What are you sporting? Well, I prefer a canoe than backpacking. I, I don't mind backpacking, but to me, backpacking is the longest portage ever created, right? <laughs> <So>, <laughs> a backpacking is just to get you to your next body of water. I know, and sometimes you're like, why am I doing this? But uh, a tarp, yes, a tent, but a tent is a doghouse. You just go there to sleep. But a tarp is really important. You know, I spend a lot of money on a tarp because you can put the fire under the tarp uh, as long as you do it proper, and you, you, it, you, you're communal. You're not trying to... Um, get through the night in a rainstorm. You're actually a part of your environment. Everybody's gathered around, or by yourself, you get a you know a, 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 you know some some whiskey or some tea, whatever. Good yep. conversation. And again, you're thriving out there. And you, I could do that for days and days and days. So instead of me saying, "Geez, I'm going to do this, but I hope I get home soon," I actually don't want to go home. So yeah. So what about food? Uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left. What about food? The cooler, all of that sort of stuff, because that's obviously an issue when you get the non-electric site. Yeah, so if you go in the interior, you're going to have to lighten your load, and you can get the water out there. A lot of people carry their water in. I don't know why. We're full of lakes here. Just have to filter it out. But I make all my meals, but I dehydrate them. I don't buy those dehydrated meals. They're pretty expensive. So I make my own. I can either dehydrate them in the oven or a dehydrator. But I eat really well, like curries, spaghetti sauce, uh, salsa. I make hors d'oeuvres, serve wine. Like it's, um, yeah, it, it's I'm not eating bugs. <laughs> <laughs> You're not pulling up rocks looking for what's underneath. Hey, no. Kevin, have you ever thought of making the happy campground? You know, I haven't, but someone just thought of that today. They, they, they actually have a, a, I think a lot of people are going to do this uh, this year. They have a piece of private property, and they're, they're uh, making a park out of it. It's not a park. It's just their own property, but they're inviting people to go into their private pr property and people are paying for it because they can't go to any, any, anywhere else. Wow. This is going to change everything. It's who knows what's going to come up the other end. Uh, Kevin Cowan with his author of the happy camper talking about the shortage of campgrounds uh, in Ontario, especially provincially, uh, not so much privately. You might have some success there, but just due to demand uh, after or in COVID-19. Kevin, thanks for the time. Continuing being happy. Yeah, you too. <laughs> Take care. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, uh, let's move on. Hey, great news if you're a conservative. Uh, not that I am. I refuse to say I'm a conservative or a liberal or an NDP anymore. I'm sitting right in the center. I guess that's how I've always been. Uh, but anyway, the conservatives, Aaron O'Toole has announced his uh, his climate change plan. Let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. He is with us now. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. Yes, I am. Hope you are, too. Hey, happy birthday. Thank you very much, sir. I saw that. Congratulations to you. Hope you're enjoying your COVID-19 birthday. I'm sure the second one for you. Second one in lockdown. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Two stay-at-home orders. Let's hope there's not a third. But I hear yeah, you. My it's w- been nice. Thank you. <laughs> I hear you. My wife was in the same boat, and I think I might be next month. Anyway, uh, your thoughts on this conservative plan to combat climate change. Uh, your, the highlights. Anything you want to mention? <laughs> Well, I mean, as, as I said publicly, I'm not in favor of it. It's not a plan that I support, especially when the world's biggest polluters, China, Russia, India, etc., are really not on side in terms of anything regarding with the Paris climate change, the climate accord, etc. I understand why the Conservatives did it, and I'm not saying that they shouldn't have released a plan of some sort. By and large, it is better than the liberal carbon tax, which, you know, I'm not necessarily saving, saying that their ideas, which I'm sure we'll get into, such as low carbon savings accounts, which is what they're going to be pushing, which is sort of, you know, like tax savings accounts. You can look at it as... Yeah, it's kind of like an, R, an, R, an, RS, uh, an RSP, is it not? Or a TFSA, something of that yeah. nature. Yeah, it is sort of like that. Or you can say... You know, the arguments when we talked about a flat tax or tuition tax credits or things of that nature. It's a way to bring in the market into the, excuse me, it's a way to bring the market into the system, but not have government heavily rely on it. But it's still a part of government reliance, and taxes will still increase under their plan. I know that they're obviously saying that the LCSAs will prevent it. And then when you use things such as, you know, they're going to promote more zero emission vehicles, which, yes, we are moving to electric vehicles in our society, but not as quickly as we actually think. And there are many people who are not going to be able to afford it. There are many, as some people pointed out, even to me directly, and maybe already to you, there are seniors, for example, who are on low incomes or fixed incomes. They're not necessarily going to be able to afford electric vehicles at the price they're at. Because right now they're extremely high, much higher than, yes, the gas-guzzling vehicles that you, I, and most of the listeners drive. But that's also because of the way the market is dealing with things right now, the high cost of these electric vehicles, and the fact that we need to build all these various power stations somewhere in our cities, which is also going to be a cost to the taxpayer, too. Now, I'm not saying the world isn't moving that direction. I'm not even saying that Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives are wrong to promote things like that. Unfortunately, though, you know, they're trying to present it as a different plan. And yes, by and large, it is a different plan. It will be it will hit our pocketbooks a little less harder than, say, the liberal carbon tax is going to. But in the end, ultimately, it's not a great plan. It's basically something that we have to do because that's what the public wants. That's what the public desires. And that's what Canadians demand of any any party that's but isn't that what government it, or becomes government? Isn't that what they should be doing? Is doing what Canadians want? I mean, as a conservative, you're not happy with this. What should they be doing? Well, I mean, as a conservative, I didn't support any of these policies. These policies were not discussed at all. Remember, I'm not a party member, Scott. I yeah. support them, but 
I haven't held party membership for close to 16 years. Like I've had, and it may even be longer than that as I sit and think about it, but I haven't held it for a long time. So I don't have a dog in this fight. It's just that obviously I am a conservative politically. I am a conservative ideologically, and I've supported this party and I worked for Harper. I mean, so what should they do things together? I am. So what should they do here? I ever discussed or ever supported. None of these things were ever proposed at the liberal at the conservative convention or otherwise. So they should. So what should they do in regard to climate change? I don't think, you know, that's what I've said. And I know people don't like it when I respond this way. It's not that countries shouldn't have a plan to deal with the environment. Yes, they should. But as I said, right off the top. Whatever Canada does or whatever Canada adds to reduce its quote-unquote carbon footprint is meaningless unless the largest polluters in the world are also on side. But is that not a bit of a scapegoat, Michael, in the sense that, well, you know, what can you do? That's like saying it's not my problem, it's your problem. Canada barely has, you know, in terms of carbon emissions throughout the world, I think Canada is, what, about 1.7%, I think I last looked at. That is meaningless in the grand scheme of things. And I know there are lots of people out in Lotus Land, which is B.C., and in other parts of the country saying, but we have to do something. We have to, you know, we have to help the environment. We have to do our take, so to speak. That's great. The problem is that if the largest ones are not doing much of anything, whatever little bit we do, which is fine, is not going to matter a lot in the grand scheme of things. Now, if the world's largest polluters ever changed their minds and then basically said, well, we understand what's been going on, you know, via the days of Kyoto Accord, etc. We're going to start to reduce our greenhouse commissions, change the way our factories reduce pollution, etc. Then, yes, I think you would have something. But the fact that Canada is doing it is not going to change hearts and minds. The fact that mid-sized countries like us do it, even if there's more of us, is not going to change hearts and minds. Even if the U.S. does it, it's not going to change hearts and minds. So, yes, Canada has to do something. I get that. And I've always believed that you have more of a private sector involvement when it comes to things involving the environment. You know, I believe the private sector can help with free market initiatives. And certainly these LCSAs that I mentioned before, these carbon savings accounts, they will help to some extent. And it is a market-based solution of sorts. It's a better way of doing it. So I'm fine with that. But to believe that this is the answer and that everything's going to change naturally and that Canada's going to be a world leader on this, please wake up. It's not going to re- it's not going to affect reality. I see your point here, Michael, uh, that, yeah, no matter what we do, it's not going to make a dent. But uh, that being said, a solution does need to be found here. We need something other than, well, there's not much we can do until China does something. And we know that that's never going to happen. So that's an easy out. Uh, but do you think Canadians will like the idea of what's t- similar to a, a TFSA here? Uh, what's similar to an RSP where, you know, if you are paying, uh, you know, and, 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 um, O'Toole was questioned on this, like, isn't this just a tax? And it's like, well, it's not, you know, it is a tax in the sense that it's collected, but it's not going to government. It's going into your account. And when you decide to buy something energy efficient, you can use, you know, your O'Toole bucks towards that. I think that's gonna, I think Canadians are going to find that a little bit more appetizing than just shoveling money into the liberal uh, coffers. Possibly, but the problem is that when you have other things, and as I said, zero emission vehicles is one. I'm just going through their list very quickly. I don't use props, as you know, but I think it's fair to do so because it's fairly new right now. So they're going to look at a global carbon price. 
which will mean that obviously, you know, they're looking at that where the liberals had sort of a price shock of $10 on top of it. They're going to try to find ways to lower the GHG sources and bring it down. So carbon prices would then be on a path of to $170 a ton by 2030. So that would be lower than what the liberals are suggesting right now. But it's still a cost incurred to taxpayers. No matter how you do it, even if you use more of a market-based approach, which is what the conservatives are looking at right now, when you have pricing systems or you're looking at standards or you're looking at creating barriers or bars, you still have to raise taxes for that or collect taxes from that. So it doesn't, when governments suggest to you that our plan is going to completely wipe us out of the equation or it's not going to go back into the government coffers completely, I'm sorry, but that's not accurate. When you raise taxes or create new programs, you have to pay for it in some fashion. Programs don't pay for themselves. It's like saying that money grows on trees. We can just pick it and put it in our pocket. That's not the way it works. It's a question, though, in the conservative case, I believe, is is their plan, which will cost Canadian taxpayers money, is it more effective and will it cost us less tax dollars in the grand scheme of things I'd have to do the math, and I'm sure others are doing it right now, and I know the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is already furious, and others are too, but I'm sure when you put the math to it, O'Toole's plan will be economically more beneficial for the average Canadian taxpayer, 100%, but it's going to cost us something. So the question is, we're not going to get away from this cost. So do we do something that seems to be more market-based and will cost us a little bit less or do we basically just go along with Justin Trudeau's grand scheme of a carbon tax, which has been denigrated by so many economists and political thinkers and academics in the past? It's not even funny. I would waste your time discussing some of it. Do we just move away from that, which will cost Canadian taxpayers more? If the O'Toole Conservatives can prove that their program costs less and is more effective, that will become a winner. Michael Tobe with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Michael, thank you so much for your time, and enjoy your birthday. Thank you very much, sir. Take care. The headline says, a grim move as Canada, a grim mood as Canada grapples with another COVID-19 wave. Liberals maintain the lead over the Conservatives. To talk more about all of this, uh, David Coletto is with us, CEO of Abacus Data, and of course, authors of the poll. We are here now. Uh, he is here now, rather. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing okay. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, great to have you. Uh, give us uh, some of the results uh, of what you found in this latest poll. It must be fascinating to see all of this transpire over the course of a global pandemic. It's uh, it is an interesting time, unfortunately. But um, but there's two stories in our in our most recent survey, and we finished it uh, yesterday, so it's it's as fresh as data you can get. The first part of the story is the political environment compared to two weeks ago when we did our last survey, hasn't changed all that much. The Liberals have a a sizable eight-point lead over the Conservatives nationally. In Ontario, um, that's up to 13 points. So big leads uh, for the Liberals that, you know, if these numbers were to hold at an election, they'd likely win a majority government. Um, And that's built upon, you know, stability and how people feel about the Prime Minister, about his handling of, of the pandemic, the overall approval rating. That's the first part. But the second part is that stability is happening at a time when Canadians overall are feeling far more anxious about the pandemic. And so, you know, that means I think part 
are, are, we're not really paying that much attention to politics. You've got the federal budget coming on Monday. There's lots of big things happening in politics. But we are increasingly worried about the third wave, particularly if you live in Ontario, Quebec, British Columbia, Alberta, um, you know, most parts of the country, in fact, except Atlantic Canada. And that is now taking our attention back. And we are really thinking about, you know, are, is the vaccine going to roll out, going to speed up? There's, people are being a lot more critical and, and I think frustration is growing here in Ontario and elsewhere about how, how it seems it's, that rollout is going slow. And that is all in the context of this new threat um, of, the sec- of this third wave. It's not coming. It's here. And, and people are increasingly feeling that we are now in the worst moment of this pandemic. And it's been going on for 14 months. How and at what point do these two lines intersect, and does one start affecting the other? Well, I don't. I don't know. I, I think what, what we don't yet see is we. I don't see any evidence, for example, in federal politics that people are blaming the prime minister uh, or the liberals for this third wave. Um, I think there what there's certainly some frustration about the delays around vaccines, particularly early on. That that's subsided to some extent, uh, but I think right now people. Are, are looking when, when we ask them in a survey, how would you vote? How are you feeling about the leaders? Um, the Liberal Party and the Prime Minister are, are really safe harbors for many people because they've, they've helped us through this, this crisis. And on the other hand, and I know we'll talk about Aaron O'Toole and the carbon and his, and his climate plan in a minute, but they look at the alternatives, particularly Aaron O'Toole, and they say, right now, I don't find him to be an up- appealing alternative, right? More yeah, enough for a change. More people have a negative view of, of Aaron O'Toole than positive, and there's no deep desire for change right now. In 2019, the last time we had an election, more than half of Canadians said, I definitely want to change a government. Today, that number is at 38. And so yeah. that anger, that intensity to want to kick the Liberals out is not there. And keep in mind, despite that intensity in 2019, they got fewer votes, but they still won almost a majority government. So how do you explain uh, high numbers for the uh, the prime minister and the provinces seemingly taking the heat, the heat when, again, it's as we're finding out today, again, in Ontario, I mean, we saw clinics close yesterday because of a Moderna shipment that didn't arrive last week. So this has continuously been a supply issue. There is not enough vaccine coming into the country, yet the prime minister is toying with majority numbers and hoping for an election while the provinces are taking the heat. Why is that? Well, I think part of it is because for those, for those in the country who say, look, I'm not thrilled that we are so far behind the U.S. I'm not thrilled that you know, uh, we have these delays and, and, and supply is, is not meeting my expectations. I, you know, the number of people who say, I want this vaccine as soon as I can get it, continues to grow, which is great news. The hesitancy around vaccines is, is, is declining slightly. But I think as it relates to the prime minister, people are, are, are generally reasonable. And they say, well, what if Aaron O'Toole was prime minister? Do we think it would have been any different? Right. We're, we're, we're a rich country. We're relatively large, but we're still not the United States. We can't force manufacturers to send us things we can't manufacture any of these vaccines here at home so that being said let me interrupt you there david you know there was a point at in this discussion a year ago in march and april 
when you decide what your plan is. Are you going to just get out the credit card and start purchasing all your vaccines, or are you going to work on a production deal? And we saw the U.K. and, and, and some other countries work on a production deal, and the U.K. went from zero to 100 in like 10 months with a vaccine. Uh, the prime minister, he chose to do a production deal with, with a, a CanSino, a Chinese company, and we all know that China pulled the rug out from underneath them, and that was gone, and then come August, went to go sign deals. So, you know, how long can Canadians go, well, we're just here because it's the way it is? It's not. <laughs> it's because a bad decision was made back at the beginning of this pandemic to go with the Chinese manufacturer after all of the uh, conflict that we've been having with this nation, and instead just buying vaccine instead of creating a deal. You know, it's like, it's the old it's the old adage, you know, uh, don't give a person fish, teach them how to fish. This is this is the greatest risk and, and liability for the for the government for Mr. Trudeau. He knows it, um, which is why they're working so hard not to create conflict with the provinces around it. Because the more that the spot, but is that has, not the story at the end of all of this, David? That's why we be. have everything else happening: the shortages, debating doses, debating who gets it first. This all stems back to a bad decision way back when. It. it it likely does. And I, again, I'm not the expert on, on what could have been done differently or, or how, but I think from, from a public perception point of view, when we ask the public, um, there are yeah. you know, more people say the government's done a bad job at doing this than a good job, Bar, like almost double the number. So, but, but what we aren't seeing is that's translating into yeah. you know, declining vote shares for the Liberals. And I think you always have to keep in mind, elections are a choice. Now, some people don't have to vote and they will stay home, but you still have to pick somebody. And until there's an obvious better choice who has yeah. a better plan, um, you know, elections aren't always about what happened in the past. People are still going to be thinking about what, what comes next. And, and right now, Aaron O'Toole in particular, even Jagmeet Singh, who's very popular, hasn't convinced enough people that the Liberals are not the best choice going forward. Yeah, lack of an opposition is certainly a factor here. David Coletto with us, CEO of Abacus Data. David, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.